Exodus 15, verse 22. It's on page 54 of your pew Bible, or if you've got your Bible app, just pull up the app. All right, verse 22, chapter 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where they were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Chapter 16. They sent out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day on the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. 
But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it had bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like the coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to an habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Cana. And Omer is a tenth part of an epaph. Chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It's the word of the Lord for us today.
Experts tell us that human beings can survive without food for up to two months, that we can survive without water for three to five days, and that we can survive in really harsh environments like the freezing cold or the extremely hot for up to about three hours without shelter. And so things like food and water and shelter are what we know as the bare necessities of life. Um, there was a show that I liked for a long time I used to watch. It was called I Shouldn't Be Alive. And in this show, they would basically tell the stories of different people who had been put into situations where they didn't have the bare necessities and they shouldn't have survived it, and yet they did. And it was fa- uh, really interesting to watch this show and people would um, maybe get lost out in the middle of the wilderness and be lost for days or weeks on end. They'd get stranded at sea for a month or two at a time or maybe buried in an avalanche in the mountains. And, and it was just these crazy, crazy situations that people were finding themselves in. And the people would just, throughout the process of from when the incident happened to them being rescued, they would sort of just lose it. I mean, they'd be going crazy because they didn't have access to the bare necessities. And that's sort of what happens when people find themselves in a place where you don't have the bare necessities, you don't have food available to you, you don't have water, you don't have shelter if you're in a really harsh environment, uh, you begin to unravel pretty quickly. And, you know, we can sit here and read about Israel and the situation going on in their history in these chapters, and we can sit back and go, wow, they're uh, grumbling and complaining again. But, but the reason for that is because Israel is finding themselves in a place where they don't have the bare necessities. In their case, it was food and water. And they're looking around going, oh my gosh, how are we going to survive in the wilderness? We don't have food. We don't have water. What is going to happen with us? Well, we see a pattern that's developing with the children of Israel now in the Exodus story. And the pattern is not a... Uh, a good one, it's a bad one, and it's a pattern of grumbling and complaining and doubting their God. In chapter 14, when Israel found themselves with their backs against the Red Sea, and remember the Egyptian army is pursuing them, and they're kind of trapped in between Pharaoh and his chariots and the Red Sea, we read in chapter 14, verse 11, that they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And so there, they're in this moment of peril, and they cry out, and they say, you should have just left us in Egypt. Why would you bring us out here, God? What were you thinking, Moses? And yet God miraculously delivered them. And now here in chapters 15 through 17, when their throats are parched, when their stomachs are grumbling from intense hunger, we read this. This is chapter 16, verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now, it's doubtful that Pharaoh fed them that well. But nevertheless, they claim that it had been better for them back then when they were slaves in Egypt. At least they had food. They had meat in the meat pots. They had bread that they could eat. And they're saying it was better back then. And Moses and God have brought us into the wilderness now to kill us. Well, contrary to what they believed, contrary to what their circumstances might have been telling them in the moment, 
You and I know, with hindsight, that God did not bring them into the wilderness to kill them. God brought them into the wilderness to deliver them, and God would, in fact, provide for them. Look at verse 4 of chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. God was about to provide for them, and he would. And they were about to learn an important lesson about Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And it's this, that the God who saves is a God who sustains. The God who saves is a God who sustains. And that was true then, and church, I want to tell you that's true now. That the God who saves us is a God who sustains us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul writes this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, God is not only concerned about your conversion, and then all of a sudden he's kind of done with you and on to the next person. Okay, you've got fire insurance. You're going to heaven. I'm done worrying about you. You take care of yourself. Who's the next person I'm going to go save? That's not the way that God is. It's sort of the difference between viewing salvation like a lifeguard saving a drowning person. If you were at the beach this afternoon and you were drowning and a lifeguard rushed out to save you and successfully did so, they would save you. But then after they got you on the beach and realized you were okay, they would walk off and you'd probably never see that lifeguard again. It's the difference between that vision of salvation or the vision of a parent who delivers a child from a moment of peril. I remember we were down by Padaro Beach Grill and uh, down in Carpinteria, and this was about two years ago. We were walking across the train tracks, and we were coming back up to the street where we were parked, and uh, it was a weekend, and if you've ever been to Padaro Beach Grill, tons of people are there on weekends, tons of traffic going up and down the street there for the beach, and I'm carrying, you know, super dad at the beach, right? I'm carrying all of this stuff because I've got young kids, so you've got to bring pack and plays and strollers and car seats. Okay, not all of that, but you get the picture. Ice chests and all this stuff. So I'm getting all of that over the railroad tracks, and then I turn, and as I'm coming to the street, Judah just comes sprinting right by me, right toward the street. And I hear my wife scream, and I turn, and just as I turn, I see Judah running out in the street, and there's a car going about 45 right there. And I reach, and thankfully he had a hoodie sweater on. And I, whatever I had, I dropped and I reached like this and I barely grabbed his hoodie and ripped him back onto the side of the road again. And I mean, me and Erica were just panic stricken. But I saved my son from getting hit by a car. And guess what? The next day I woke up and I was ready to save my son again. And between then and now, I've saved my son from many different catastrophes and disasters that would have fallen on him. Why? Because I'm a dad. I'm not like a lifeguard who just, I'm here for a moment to rescue you, and then you're off on your own. I'm committed to him for the rest of his life. And that's a more accurate picture of what salvation looks like. See, a lot of times when we talk about salvation, we talk about it in terms of conversion. We say, I was saved in 2004, for example, which is true, There is a moment when God saves us, but salvation is much fuller and much richer than just conversion. Conversion is just the starting point of salvation from our experience. 
But salvation includes conversion. It includes sanctification where God's growing you into the image of Christ. It includes glorification where someday this life ends and we carry on into eternity and we have a glorified body in the presence of God for all of eternity. That is what salvation is. And so God saves us and he sustains us throughout time and eternity. We can be certain that because God has saved us and he's brought us into a relationship with himself, that he is now committed to sustaining us in every area of our life for the rest of our life. But Israel didn't get this yet. Israel's saying, okay, God saved us at the Red Sea, but who's going to save us in the wilderness now from these challenges that are ahead of us? Answer, Yahweh. Because the God who saved them is the God who sustains them. And all the grumbling in the world couldn't change that. Look at verse 9 again in chapter 16. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. They must have been like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. He heard our grumbling. He wants us to come near. He's going to drop the hammer on us. Verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Aren't you encouraged by the fact that our ingratitude doesn't nullify God's goodness? I'm so thankful for that. That God is good toward us because God is good. God is not good toward us because we're a grateful people all the time or because we're a righteous people or because we do everything right. God is good because God is good. And our ingratitude doesn't nullify his goodness. Israel grumbles. Israel complains. Israel cries out against God, making accusations against him. And yet God provides. Hey, parents, when your kids whine and complain, when your kids make false accusations against you, how do you feel like responding? Don't say it out loud because we don't want to report you to CPS, but not good, right? When your kids are just whining and complaining, I think the number one thing my kids complain about is the food we serve them. Every single meal, it's, I don't like this, I don't like this. And it's like, kid, there are children who have no food. And it frustrates you as a parent. But look at the Lord. They whine, they complain, they grumble. They come at God and they make accusations against him. And what does he do? He blesses. And he says, look, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven to provide for them. It's beautiful. But when he was going to rain down bread from heaven, I want you to notice that it wasn't just to provide for them. That was part of it. It was also to test them. Look at verse 4 in chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So their experience with the manna in the wilderness is actually going to be a test from the Lord. And the test is to see whether or not they're going to obey his commands. 
Now, when you fast forward some 40 years later, and Moses is on his deathbed, and the children of Israel are actually about to enter into the promised land, Moses, in Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, elaborates a little bit on this testing. Here's what Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 tells us. Moses writes, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So there's the testing. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So God is testing them by feeding them with manna to see whether or not they are going to obey him and receive his provision. So there's a test. We see the guidelines of the test in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, we see the first guideline is that everyone should go out and gather a day's portion of bread every single day. And then in verse 5, we read that on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So again, the guidelines are number one, everyone goes out and gathers a day's portion of bread every single day. And number two, on the sixth day, everyone gathers two days worth. Now, why were they to gather two days worth on the sixth day? Because the seventh day is the Sabbath, right? Seventh day is the Sabbath. And so on that day, on the sixth day, they gather two days worth so that they don't have to go out and work on the Sabbath. Now, at first, they fail the test. Look at verse 19 of chapter 16. It says, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. What's going on? Well, Israel fails the test. They don't trust the Lord. They don't obey his command. Presumably, we can understand why they failed. They're looking at the situation. They have all of this manna laid out for them on that morning. And they think to themselves, let's get a whole bunch of it and hoard this and stockpile this because we're in the middle of a wilderness. We don't have food every day. We don't know if tomorrow morning we're going to wake up and have a meal again. So they hoard a bunch of it. And they eat what they want for that day, but they've got a bunch of it left over, and that's tomorrow's food. And God says, no, it's not. Tomorrow they wake up, and it bred worms, and it stank, and it was not going to be useful for them as food anymore. God was teaching them, it's not about collecting as much bread as you can. In fact, it's not about finding food for yourself. What it is about is having me. So let me, let me expand point one for a moment for us this morning. Point one is the God who saves is a God who sustains. Let me expand that. Therefore, look beyond the provision to the provider. Look beyond the provision to the provider. God is the one who would sustain them. God was the one who would meet all of their needs. They were fixated on the provision. We've got to get the food. We've got to cover our bases. We've got to take care of ourselves. And God is teaching them a lesson. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
The key to experiencing God's blessing and provision, the key to experiencing life, was obeying God's word. And church, that hasn't changed. Lots of times we find things going wrong in our lives, and we wonder why. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this right now? Now, I know that sometimes things happen, and God allows things in our lives to test us, and it's not the result of our sin or our disobedience to God's word. But sometimes it is. There was a sign in front of a church that I saw, and it had this message on it. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. (laughs) That's helpful. Sometimes we need that realism. We always want to romanticize it. Well, God's God's doing some work here, and that's why I'm going through this trial. Yeah, maybe, but sometimes it's because you aren't doing what God's telling you to do. And God is testing Israel here, and he's saying, trust me, do it my way, and your needs are going to be met. I'm going to take care of of you, and you are going to be blessed. In order to experience the life, they needed to obey God's word. And this is the real reason for the manna in the wilderness. By feeding them, listen, by feeding them with manna, which is supernatural provision, by feeding them that way, instead of just taking care of them by leading them into different areas that there was food that they could just gather for themselves, God was teaching them that he is their real provider. They're waking up every day in the middle of a desert. There is no water in sight. There is no food. And God is sustaining them. He's sending quail in in the evening to give them meat. He's sending manna from the heavens every morning to sustain them. And he is teaching them a lesson here. Your life is not about these things. The source of your life is me. And if you've got me, you've got everything you need. God is their real provider. I remember when I was pretty young, but old enough to remember, I might have told this story before, but uh, my dad was between work. He was an electrician at that time. And this was before he started his own company. So he was an electrician working for different people. And we were in a recession in the 90s. And my dad got laid off from a company he had been working for for a long time. They had to cut like 60% of their staff, I think. So he got laid off and he kept going down to the hall and putting his name on the books and trying to get work week after week after week and was just finding little odds and ends here and there. But we get to the end of the month and rent was due and rent was like 900 something dollars. Again, I said this was in the 90s, okay? Now we're like $900 for rent. Actually, it wasn't rent. It was a mortgage for $900, Um, 900 and some change. And my dad didn't have any money. And he prayed, and he prayed, and Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage. And we go to church that Sunday, the day before our mortgage is due, and a guy that my dad knew in the church walks up to my dad and says, the Lord told me to give this to you, Marty. Hands him a check, and my dad, or hands him an envelope. My dad opens it, and it's a check for $1,000. It was just enough money for my dad the next day, on the last day before our mortgage was due, to write that check and pay the mortgage, and then he had a little bit of money left over, and we went to McDonald's. And I remember being very excited about that as a little kid. But what was so cool about that is, sure, God could have said, you know what, Marty, here, I'm going to give you a job for two weeks right now so you can make that $1,000 and make ends meet. But there was something really profound. 
really powerful about my dad being in a spot of being so vulnerable and so desperate. And all he could conclude when that friend walks up to him in a way that seems random and just walks up and says, I don't know why, but God told me to give this to you. My dad's going, wow. And us kids are going, wow, God cares. And God's providing. And as long as we have him, I guess nothing else really matters. He's going to take care of us. And this is what God is teaching Israel in the wilderness. From the beginning, manna was about more than physical sustenance. It was meant to point beyond the provision itself to the provider so that Israel would be a people who learned that life, that real life is about more than just food. Real life is about having God and all that he supplies physically and, of course, even more so spiritually. Man does not live by bread alone. We see here that there's a type of life that is more than physical life because bread is what we live by physically. And Moses and then later Jesus is saying, look, man doesn't live by that alone. There is a type of life that is more than physical. We can call it spiritual life. And our spiritual life is being nourished by the word of God. We take in God's word and as we obey it and live in light of it, our souls are being sustained. You know, God's word is to your spiritual life what food is to your physical life. And just as God nourished Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven as they followed his word, he nourishes us throughout our lives through the scriptures. We ought to be a people who are feasting on God's word. So the God who saves is a God who sustains. But secondly, we see in this series of passages that the God who saves is a God who satisfies. Notice that Israel was craving the meat pots and the bread that they ate to the full back in Egypt. That's what they said in verse 3. Again, it's doubtful that that was true. It's doubtful that Pharaoh fed his slaves that well to the, oh, we just were eating to the full. We couldn't possibly stuff another morsel of bread into our stomachs. It's probably not true. But don't we have a way of romanticizing the past? Especially if things in the present aren't going that great for us. It's like the girl who's been single for a long time now and she looks back at the old ex-boyfriend and, oh, he wasn't really that bad. Girl, he literally made you cry every single day. Yes, he was that bad. But we have a way of romanticizing the past when things aren't going well in the present. And that's what Israel is doing here. Oh, it was so good down in Egypt. Really, was it? You were slaves. You were being worked to the bone. Your sons were being slaughtered by Pharaoh. It was not good there. It was terrible. So it's probably not true what they're saying. But nevertheless, this is what I want us to see this morning. Even though this wasn't true, God gives them meat and bread. In other words, God gives them exactly what they're longing for. And he gives it to them in the form of manna and quail. And it's not just a meager portion. They were reminiscing about a time in Egypt where, again, they were just filled to the brim with food. And that wasn't true. But now God is going to truly fill them to the brim in the wilderness. He gives them meat in the evening and bread to the full. That's what verse 8 says. 
Now they really are going to have bread to the full. He's going to make it in verse 4, as we already read, rain bread from heaven. The idea is there's going to be so much bread scattered everywhere, you're going to to have more than you could possibly want. And that's what we read. They were allowed to go out and gather each one as much as they wanted. They could eat to the full now under Yahweh's lordship. Under Pharaoh, they were slaves. Now under Yahweh, they're sons and daughters. And he's feeding them to the full. He turns the bitter water sweet at the end of chapter 15. And then notice, he leads them to Elam where... In 1527, you'll read, there were 12 springs of water. They go in one moment, we have no water, we're going to perish out here. And God turns bitter water sweet and they have a drink and then God says, I've got even more where that came from. And he leads them over where there's now not just one spring of fresh water, there's 12 springs of fresh water and 70 palm trees for them to sit under the shade God is saying to them, I am going to satisfy you. The very thing they were craving is the thing that God gives them, and he gives it to them in abundance. So now let me expand point number two for for us this morning. Point number two is the God who saves is a God who satisfies. Therefore, trust that what you lay aside for him will be more than made up for. Trust that what you lay aside for him will be more than than made up for. Church, we need to understand this morning that we don't give up anything by coming to Christ that we that he won't replace with something, listen, far better. We don't give up anything in coming to Christ that he won't replace with something far better. Just so you know, there's no device capable of audio playback connected. Sorry. Let me quiet my watch here. Technology at its finest. So let me re-say what I was saying a moment ago. We don't give up anything by coming to Christ that he won't replace with something far better. Israel is saying, oh, we used to sit in Egypt eating bread and meat, and yet God took it away from us. And here's what God's saying to them. I took that bread and meat away from you, Because that was food that was sustaining your slavery. And instead, I am going to give you food now that is going to sustain your freedom. God is replacing what they lost with something far better. Whatever you have to give up to follow Jesus will be exponentially compensated for. Daniel, where are you getting this from? Do you remember the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10? Jesus identifies that this man's possessions are his God. Jesus says, you need to sell it all, give the money to the poor, and you need to come follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to learn that I'm the real provider. Forget about the provision. Focus on the provider. And the rich young man couldn't do it. And he walked away sorrowful. And then the disciples say something to Jesus. They say, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What about us? And here's what Jesus says. You would think that Jesus would say, don't worry about yourselves, you greedy people. He doesn't. Here's what Jesus says. This is Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands 
with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, I remember when I first became a Christian, I literally had to get rid of every person I used to hang out with. They were all bad for me. My girlfriend was bad news. That had to stop. All of my friends, bad news. And so I literally kind of walked away from all of that. And I remember I'm coming to church and I'm worshiping the Lord. And I remember after about three weeks thinking to myself, I really need some friends. Like, I, like Friday night still comes around even if you're a Christian. And I want something to do and I want to not do it by myself. Like I need some friends here. And I remember coming across this passage and I remember asking myself, is that really true? Like, God, do you really replace those things that we had to let go of? And very quickly on, the Lord began to surround me with amazing godly friends, true friends, better friends. And before long, I remember being at my old church and having more friends than I could hang out with. I mean, just more people that were great people than I had time for in the week. And I remember sitting there and going, oh my gosh, Lord, you wanted me to trade in friends who were destructive to my life for friends who were now benefiting and blessing my life. Maybe God asked you to leave a relationship to follow him or a lifestyle or a specific career or a home you loved or a city you enjoyed and you're struggling with it right now. Friend, can I tell you to just be encouraged by Israel. God took away something that they thought was good and replaced it with something that was far better. The God who saves is a God who satisfies. And so this morning, as we've considered water and bread in the wilderness, the lesson for Israel was that God would provide for them and that God would satisfy them. And the lesson for the church today is that the same God is going to provide for us and the same God is going to satisfy us. And not just in our physical life. Yes, God did meet their physical needs. And God is going to meet your physical and material needs until the day that he says, enough is enough. You're coming home and you're spending eternity with me. He will take care of us in the here and now. But it's not just that. It's not just that God was meeting their physical needs. Their physical needs were meant to point past the hunger of their stomachs to the hunger of their souls. And God is saying to Israel, look to me to supply your needs. Look to me to satisfy your life because you will never find what you're looking for out here, outside of Christ. Augustine, one of the church fathers, famously said, you created us for yourself, O God, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. God satisfying the physical hunger and the physical thirst of his people in the wilderness in Exodus is a picture of the even greater satisfaction that God can provide for the spiritual hunger and thirst of his people. And the New Testament picks up on this all over the place. It uses the imagery of bread and water, and then it applies them to Jesus Christ. And we see in the New Testament that it's Jesus who is the true bread. It is Jesus who is the true water that these stories are pointing to. In John chapter 6, Jesus is called the bread of life. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, Jesus is called the rock that Moses struck in chapter 17. It's no coincidence that in John 6, where Jesus is the bread of life, that he feeds over 5,000 people 
with five loaves and two fish. It's a supernatural feeding. And it's also not a coincidence that in chapter 6 of John, it says that they ate as much as they wanted from those loaves and those fish, just like the children of Israel. And I want to read to you what happens after he feeds them. This is John chapter 6, verses 25 through 35. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see you and or that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're referencing exactly what we're reading right now. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's the end of verse 35. So Jesus here is being called now the bread of life. And Jesus here in John chapter 6 is saying, look, it was not Moses who gave you that food. The Father is the one who fed your ancestors in the wilderness, and the Father has now given us the bread that really satisfies us forever, and it is Jesus himself. He is the bread of life. Jesus is the one who satisfies. Jesus is the one who provides us with eternal life. We all have spiritual hunger pains until we come to Jesus. And as humans, we try to pacify those pains with all the things that the world has to offer. For some people, it's drugs. For others, it's drink. For others, it's sex. For others, it's money. For others, it's status. For others, it's power. But all of those things are like spiritual junk food. It's like eating candy. Sure, for a moment, it tastes really good. It probably gives you a sugar rush and an energy boost. But when you try to live off of that, ultimately it makes you sick. And that's the way it is for all of us spiritually. Until our souls come and feast on Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only one who can satisfy your soul. How do we experience this satisfaction in Christ? And Jesus explained it's just by looking on the Son and believing in him. It's saying, I am going to trust in him alone. I'm going to take him at his word, just like Israel was taking Yahweh at his word through the, the wilderness. It's taking Christ at his word, trusting him to save you from your sins, trusting him to bring you into relationship with God, trusting him to give you eternal life, trusting him to satisfy you, not looking to all these other things in our lives, but looking to Christ alone. And church, if we do this, we will never hunger or thirst again. Our souls will be satisfied. I'll end with this verse, John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus says to the woman at the well, 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we are so encouraged this morning by this powerful reminder from the history of Israel that you are a God who saves and sustains us. You delivered them from Egypt and from Pharaoh. You parted the Red Sea and saved them from their enemies. And then here in the wilderness, you sustained them on their journey toward the promised land. Lord, we're also reminded that not only did you sustain them, but you satisfied them. You gave them sustenance until they were filled to the brim. They could eat as much as they want. They were never left without. You were a God who is satisfying the craving, the desire of their heart. And Lord, we know that you are a God who truly satisfies us and truly sustains us. Lord, we understand that as we look to you, as we call out to you in our times of need in this life, that you're a God who sustains us. You're a God who sees us through on our pilgrimage toward the promised land. But Lord, we know that the ultimate sustaining and the ultimate satisfaction that you always intend to give us is not just sustenance for our physical life, because everyone's going to die. But it's that you want to sustain our real life, our soul, for all of eternity. And you want to satisfy us for all of eternity. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have come to us, the bread who came down from heaven, Jesus the Christ. We thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. We thank you that you rose again from the grave three days later. And we thank you that by faith we can still drink of the water that you give, eat of the food that you provide, and never thirst or hunger again. We thank you that in you we can be satisfied for time and eternity. So this morning we would pray that you would once again strengthen our faith in you, that you would help us to be a people who are drinking deeply from the well of living water that you would cause us to be a people who are feasting constantly on you, the bread of life, and on your word. And Lord, as we do these things, we pray that we would be a more and more satisfied people in you. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. We love you. We praise you. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.